In the summer of 1997, I was stationed on a 110-foot Coast Guard cutter, and that summer we were patrolling mostly off the, the shores of Washington and Oregon coast doing different fisheries boardings and things, and uh, we began to notice this horrible smell on the boat about a week and a half into our uh, into our cruise. We checked everything, I mean, people's lockers, uh, people's armpits, I mean, we checked, um, <laughs> we checked garbage cans, and finally we found the source of this horrible smell. It was in the storage locker near the air intake, which of course is bringing the smell throughout the whole ship. And it was a bunch of these glass balls that were wrapped in fish netting and they were plucked from the sea. They're actually Japanese fishing buoys. And our captain had seen them um, a week or so earlier floating in the water and picked them up because they're kind of cool looking. Well, then they started to decompose and it was kind of really hideous in there. But I guess my point is that uh, the bigger surprise for me was how these inanimate objects, these glass balls without motors or mines or ways of propelling themselves, traveled nearly 4,800 miles by themselves to where we were off the Washington coast. Of course, you know that they didn't travel on their own, that they were brought over by the powers of current and, and by the power of the wind. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. And it's a day we remember when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, the spirit of the living God indwelling every believer, empowering us for mission and to be more and more like Christ. As we've been journeying through the book of Acts together, we've seen time and time again how the Holy Spirit acts as a great and mysterious power, like ocean currents and rushing wind moving the disciples outward and spreading the word of Jesus throughout the kingdom. And today, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 14, and I'm going to be pointing out three signs of the Spirit that we see in the story. Now first, let me just set the scene for us. You may recall that back in Acts chapter 13, Saul and Barnabas are plucked out from among the believers by the Spirit and chosen to go on a mission, on a journey to spread the good news. And so these two go out from, uh, from Antioch in Syria, and they travel to the island of Cyprus, and they spread the gospel there. There, Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul, uh, because it's more accepted in the Gentile world. And then they head over to this place called Perga, and then Pisidian Antioch. And they are there just meeting with this mixture of resistance and acceptance. Some believe, some don't. Some accept the message, some run out on them. And as we enter into Acts chapter 14, we see them enter into a synagogue in Iconium. Now, I made a commitment to keep these sermons roughly 20 minutes because I know how hard it is when you're in the house with kids with short attention spans or if you have a short attention span and it just seems harder to pay attention when you're in your own house. So, I have two ways for us to engage with the sermon today. For those of you who feel no pressure, like you have all the time in the world, um, I want to encourage you to, to follow my prompts when I pause or stop for the reading of the scriptures or for deeper reflection. If you have the time to do that, I think you're going to get a lot more out of the message. But the second way is just to plow ahead, and I'll be giving you the main ideas, and I hope that you're going to be blessed either way. Okay, so let's try this out. If you have the time, pause now and read the text out loud, Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 10, and then restart the video or podcast when you're ready. So in this section, we see two signs of the Spirit. The first is that whenever we see 
genuine spreading of the good news of Jesus, the Spirit is at work. We may recall Acts 1.8 when Jesus promises the Spirit to his uh, first followers, and, and he says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And, and he, that promise, you will be my witnesses, has energy behind it, and that energy is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So then in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested, and when they're released, they join the church, and they pray with the church, and they ask Jesus to do some things. They ask him that they would be enabled to speak his word with all confidence, and that Jesus would extend his hand that he might heal and do signs and wonders through them. And then when they had prayed that prayer, the ground where they were meeting was shaking, and the Spirit began to enable them to spread the Word of God with boldness. So here, in Acts 14.3, we see that they were speaking boldly and with reliance on the Lord, and He was granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. And we see that the Spirit is at work in this scene in three particular ways. First, the Spirit sends the disciples into the world to share the good news. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus, then someone at some point shared Jesus with you. They were sent by the Spirit. Second, the Spirit softens the hearts of those who are ready to believe. Almost everywhere the gospel goes out, it is met with both resistance and acceptance. We can't control the outcome of sharing the gospel, but we aren't supposed to have any control over that. The Spirit sends and the Spirit softens. The third thing is that the Spirit is ever at work in every single person. And that's good news because every person we care about, every neighbor, even every enemy, is in the care of the Spirit. And on top of all of that, it means that the Spirit is ever at work in you and me. Sometimes we wrongly think of life in terms of in or out, Christian or non-Christian, saved or unsaved, you know, whatever markers that you want to use. But the problem with that type of thinking is that it, it tends to other others. And, and it makes us falsely assume that as soon as we're baptized or pray a prayer or begin to follow Jesus, we're somehow supposed to be finished products. And that type of thinking brings an incredible amount of shame because none of us really live up to the Jesus we see in the Gospels. We're far from finished products. And, and the good news then is that Part of the work of the Spirit in us is to ever refine us into the image of Jesus. You know, like those Japanese fishing buoys that were thousands away from Japan, we might feel like we're thousands of way, miles away from, from Jesus, but it's not our strength that will get us closer to Him. It is the mysterious current and rushing wind of the Spirit that helps us to grow as we work in concert with the Spirit, as we listen and obey. In fact, consider pausing here for a moment and ask yourself, in what area of my life is the Spirit inviting me to grow more like Jesus right now? So not only does the Spirit bring energy for the spread of the gospel, but the second sign of the Spirit is that wherever the Spirit is at work, there is healing and life and blessing. So Paul and Barnabas learned about this plot against their lives when they were in Iconium. And so they travel over to these three little towns that are nearby each other to Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe. 
And it's there at their second stop in Lystra where they meet this guy who was born lame. Now, does that sound familiar in the book of Acts? Right? Check out this chart that lines up the passages from Acts 3 and Peter and John and Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas. Here we have two men who were born lame from their mother's womb. Uh, the, the, you know, the, they're gazed at by Paul and by Peter. Um, but the, the big thing here is that as we walk through the scene, we see um, that both of them leap for joy when they are healed. These are clear references to Isaiah 35, in which there's a promise that God's presence would come and that the lame would dance and that the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the mute can speak. It is about the advent of God's salvation coming to the world. Now, where is this happening? Pay attention. In Acts chapter 3, it happens outside the gate of Jerusalem, and we made a point that it was outside the temple. Now here it's even further outside, like in another country, and it's outside the temple of Zeus that God is meeting them. The Spirit of God, the powerful current and the rushing wind of God's life-giving presence is uncontainable. The Spirit will not be confined by geographical boundaries or, or ethnic boundaries or cultural boundaries. The Spirit will bring life to all with faith to believe. This isn't about just a healing, although God does care about healing and God does still heal people. But this story is a sign and a symbol of the life-giving power of the Spirit. You can know for a fact that if our laws and our systems are oppressive and affirming of death, then they are not of the Holy Spirit. The system that creates Space for regular racist violence is not of the Spirit. The Spirit that creates, uh, out of necessity, economic inequality and favors the rich over the poor is not of the Spirit. It's oppressive. The Spirit brings life and salvation to the body and to the soul. If you have time to pause, consider sharing with someone next to you or by jotting down in a journal, how is the Holy Spirit showing you ways in this day and age uh, that you could be a blessing to others. And then, when you've considered that, read Acts 14, 1 through 18. So one or two generations before Paul, there was this poet named Ovid who wrote a work called Metamorphosis. In this poem, two Greek gods Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, follow the Roman pantheon. Anyway, these gods come down in the general area of Lystra. That's where Paul and Barnabas were. So generations before, right? So they come down and they disguise themselves as human beings, and they don't tell anyone in the towns there that they're, they're gods. And what they do is they, they go to different people's houses and they are consistently re rejected and not shown hospitality until one older couple invites them in and blesses them. Then Zeus and Hermes reveal themselves as who they are. They curse the town and they bless this older couple. Now, by the time that Paul and Barnabas are ministering in Lystra, most of the educated city dwellers and philosophers had rejected the notion of this pantheon of gods and goddesses, frankly because they were embarrassed by them. They were morally impure, they were fickle and mean and nasty, constantly having affairs with each other. And I mean, it's just, they're, they're horrible. 
But in common practice, people were very superstitious, especially in rural areas like Lystra. And so people in those backwater towns were always on the lookout for what if other gods and goddesses might be hidden among them. So when Paul and Barnabas do this amazing work at the, with the power of the Spirit in healing this man, they start um, saying, Zeus and Hermes are among us. And this scene illustrates a third sign of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit holds both truth and grace in a life-giving tension. So here we have multiple levels of blasphemy in one story. Of course, on the surface level, the crowds are attributing the work of God to these false gods, Zeus and Hermes. But at a, at a deeper level, right, Paul and Barnabas are under threat of receiving praise and honor that is due to God alone. They're under threat of, of committing blasphemy themselves if they receive this praise. So remember back in Acts chapter 12, when Herod Agrippa I receives a praise, they're all calling him divine and all of these kind of things, and he's eaten from worms from the inside out as a judgment from God. Well, this story is a worms eating from the inside out potential moment right here. Okay, so, but the good thing is that Paul and Barnabas are not Herod Agrippa. They are spirit-filled agents of the living God. And as soon as they realize what's going on, they tear their robes in classical Jewish fashion, which indicates a, a, a lament or distress and grave disapproval. And then they rush into the crowds and they kneel and they say, we're men just like you. Stop worshiping us. We're sent to preach the gospel that you should turn from these vain gods and goddesses, these vain idols, and that you should turn to the living God. Now, this is truth. This is not mincing of words, no beating around the bush, but that isn't the end of the story, not by a long stretch. You see, some people think that they have exclusive rights on the truth. Liberals think that, conservatives think that, people of other, uh, other faiths and even atheists can all fall into this polarized view of the world and other people. Christians can be the worst. But when the Spirit is at work in us, and we realize that any ounce of truth we have is a gift from above, and it's supposed to be used to bless others, not to shame them, well, then we ought to experience some humility in realizing that God is, and God has been, and God ever will be at work among all people everywhere for all time. In this case, as an agent of the Spirit, Paul takes time to find common ground, common grace, in order to teach his pagan audience. You may have noticed that when Paul is preaching in the synagogues, he's using scripture and he's quoting prophets and he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. The scriptures and the story of Israel are the assumed common ground when you're talking to people worshiping in a synagogue. But in the pagan countryside, what does an educated Jewish, now follower of Jesus, have in common with rural pagans from Asia Minor? Not a lot, except for, well, everybody lives under the same sky, and everybody needs rain for their crops. And both Paul and Asia Minor are near the ocean, the sea, and who hasn't looked at the majestic sea and marveled at its beauty and yet been humiliated or tamed or humbled by its power? What Paul seems to be saying is all of those good things you enjoy, 
any abundance or fruitfulness you rejoice in. It's not a result of fearful sacrifices to fickle gods written about by poets of old. It's a gift from the living God, the gracious God, who loves to give good gifts to his children. The good things in life are a witness to a good God, the one we're preaching about, Paul would say. And Paul, notice how he preaches the truth of Scripture here to these pagans without actually quoting Scripture, because that would be meaningless to the crowds. And I think that's extremely freeing. The Spirit meets us where we're at, finds common ground. The Spirit does not require people to be at a certain level before God uh, works in them. And I think that in such a polarized world, it's very refreshing to realize that the Spirit of God has a commitment to truth without sacrificing the common ground, and that the Spirit has a commitment to common ground without sacrificing the truth. That's such an important word for the times that we're now living in. I encourage you to think of a person in your life, someone who doesn't yet know how much Jesus loves them. It might be a person that you think in your mind would never come to know Christ. Maybe they're even antagonistic toward Christ. And rather than focusing on the disagreement, focus on what the common ground might be. What common ground might the Spirit be pointing you toward in this moment? Consider pausing the video or podcast and reflect upon that question for a minute. As we prepare to bring this time of uh, preaching to a close, I want to help us get a little more personal. And I want to ask you to consider an area of your life where you're not doing very well. Maybe you're having a hard time receiving the love of Jesus. Maybe you are experiencing anxiety or fear or shame, or there's some other obstacle in your life that seems to be preventing you from experiencing the love of God. The usual avenues, maybe, aren't working for you. The, the typical quiet time or prayer time or Bible study time. And, and we all know that we can't get together physically as the church gathered right now. And that's, that's a huge obstacle for many of us. But I want you to imagine some place, some common ground, where you are able to go. Maybe it's your garden. Maybe it's walks that you're taking during this time of crisis. Maybe it's a good book or some time out in nature or uh, conversations with a friend. Imagine that safe place where you can go and invite the Spirit who meets us on common ground to come meet you on that common ground. I believe He will. I believe the Spirit is always seeking to touch us and to bring us into further relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. We lift up our world to you, praying that your kingdom would come, praying, Holy Spirit, for life and joy and abundance and goodness and justice in our land. Lord, we also recognize that we are broken people and hurting people. And in this time of crisis, everything seems off. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in common ground, in the places in our lives that you have gifted us, where we feel safe, unthreatened, at peace. 
And they may not be traditional places or even the usual places. But we pray, Holy Spirit, meet us on common ground. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.